Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church. Let's begin today by entering into prayer together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather today as family, as members of your body, the body of your Son. We thank you, Father, for salvation, for Christ dying for our sins and you raising him from the dead. And we thank you, Father, for your word that you've provided in written form. It hasn't changed in 2,000 years. We thank you for, the, for its stability. We thank you for its power to change our hearts, for its power to pre- preach the gospel to the world. We ask today, Father, for the Holy Spirit to guide and direct us as we participate in all that will be going on in the worship service, the singing, the learning of the word of God, the fellowship with one another, the giving. We ask, uh, Father, finally, that you would uh, continue to protect your church in this country and around the world. We ask this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand and worship with us. Well, I suppose I'll fly away. I just hope I can get off the ground. You know, I put on a few pounds, you know. Well, I want to thank the uh, singers this morning for leading us in song. They always do a great job. Also, want to say uh, hello this morning to the folks that are out there on the internet. Sometimes we forget about those people, but they're watching us, and uh, we appreciate the fact that you're a part of our congregation, even though you're many miles away, in most cases. Um, few announcements before we get started this morning. As you know, every month we feature a different missionary organization that we support. And this month we have been featuring Chosen People Ministries. Uh, as many of you know, their, their mission is to evangelize the Jewish people around the world. They have a, um, a great uh, uh, office location in, um, here, right here in South Florida. Many of you know Rich Freeman. And I'm, speaking of Rich Freeman, there he is. He's going to be joining us on December 22nd, which is the Sunday before Christmas. And as many of you know, we usually have our special Christmas celebration on that day. Well, it's going to be extra special this year because we're going to look at the connections between Hanukkah and Christmas. So that's going to be something to look forward to. We hope that you're all able to join us unless you've been traveling. Also mentioned today again that Pastor Kingsley Emaniki has his South Africa mission trip. He's now left. He left on Wednesday. And uh, so please keep that in prayer for his safety, but most importantly for the fruit that uh, I know the Lord will bring from his ministry out there. And he'll be back um, on, uh, I guess it would be October 1st, because his mission trip is, as you can see, from the 18th to the 30th. Also, we mentioned this last week, I want to mention again that we're going to participate as a church in a program called First Priority. This program brings the gospel to public schools. There's something in the state law of Florida that allows any, any group of students to form any kind of club they want, including Christian clubs. So that's something. And so we are um, we're going to adopt, as it were, Deerfield Beach Middle School, which is really right, right up the road. It's about two miles away. Um, so please keep that in prayer. There will be opportunities for the congregation to be a part of that as time goes on. And I'll let you know what those things are as they arise. We have Bibles in the back. If anyone needs one, just raise your hand and we'll make sure we get one to you. Going, going, 
No, I'm just kidding. All right, this morning, uh, if you could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. And I need extra prayers this morning, especially since I see a lot of women out there in the congregation today, because we're in a place that's a little challenging for a pastor to preach when there's women. Just kidding. No, not really. Um, The title of today's message sort of kicks it off. The woman was created for the man's sake. The woman was created for the man's sake. Now, ladies, there's nothing you can do about this, because all the way back in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we learned that man was created first, and then woman was created out of the rib of man. And so just by that alone, it's just a fact that the woman was created for the man's sake. We'll see more of that this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Now I praise you, Paul writing to the Corinthian church, because you remember me in everything, and you hold firmly to the traditions, just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, And the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. Ouch. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off, her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Looking around, hey, the ladies are all still here. Good job. We're going to see this morning um, what this is really all about. Okay, so just take a deep breath. As we walk through this, I think you'll understand better what Paul is writing and not writing. What the Spirit is inspiring us to understand in these words and what he's not. We're going to see some of that. Well, here, um, Paul is writing this section, verses 2 to 16 of chapter 11, to supplement earlier instructions he's already given. And most likely he'd given them orally, face-to-face, spoke to them when he was there. He spent a year and a half in Corinth. It was during that time that he did so much teaching. And there's no doubt that he gave instructions earlier that a woman in their church, at their time, ought to have a covering on her head when she is praying or prophesying. And notice that last part. He's talking about when a woman is praying or prophesying. Keep that in mind. All right. Well, this section, as you know, I think by now is challenging, and it's challenging for at least two reasons. The the first one is that it appears to fly in the face of our modern culture, influenced as our culture has been by the feminist movement. 
I'm not disparaging that this morning, ladies. I'm just describing it. That's a fact, that if you look at what has changed since the, since the 1960s, you will see that our culture has changed with respect to women. It's just the way it is. But the second thing, and this is just as critical to understand, is that in several places here, it's hard to interpret. This results in a lot of misunderstanding. I dare say that it unfortunately creates room for pastors to kind of be inventing what they want the people to think about this. See, when something's crystal clear, it's crystal clear. But if it's hard to interpret, why then all kinds of different interpretations come out. And that's a problem because there's a lot of misunderstanding about this passage. Well, I want to address both of these concerns today, but I want to start out by saying what this is not teaching. First of all, this section is not teaching that women in our day and age have to wear hats in church. It's not teaching that. Okay, that's number one. Number two, it's not teaching that the woman must be obedient and subordinate to the man. That is not what this is about. Okay, yes, well, as you probably understand, if you've been to a Christian wedding, that the, Ephesians 5 does deal with something like that, namely that the woman must be um, submitting to her husband. But even that doesn't mean that, she's, that, she, that he is... Uh, um, That she has to be totally obedient, totally subordinate, the key being subordinate to the man. Here, that's definitely not what Paul is teaching. All right, so let's look again and begin in verse 2 of of 1 Corinthians 11. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Again, he delivered them to them in the past when he was there in person. Notice that Paul introduces this new subject by praising the Corinthian church. Now, he didn't always do that, as you know, if you've been following along with us in 1 Corinthians 11. There are a lot of times when he did the opposite. There are a lot of times when he was saying, don't you know these things? In sort of a critical way, he chastises their wrong behavior. But here he doesn't do that. He praises them. And notice he, what he praises them about. He, he's pleased that they're keeping his teachings in mind. He also praises them for following the traditions he gave them, presumably the oral teaching, again, that he gave them when he was with them. And no doubt, one of the subjects that came up was the issue of what women are wearing when they're preaching or praying or prophesying. No doubt. But here he praises them. Basically, he says, you've retained my teachings and you're following them. No, he's setting off on a positive note here. That's important. Because he's not foolish, he understands that what he's about to write will be contentious, at least to some in the church. But here he's basically saying, look, this isn't personal. I'm not angry with you about this. And as we know, he's been angry with them already, and he'll be angry with them again soon enough when he deals with the Lord's Supper. But right here he's not. And with that setup, he now launches into his teaching on the subject of head coverings during public worship services. And that's important too. This is dealing with public worship services. It's not dealing with the home. It's not saying that women have to have a certain kind of covering at home, in private when they're praying. That's not it at all. It's dealing only with the public worship service. That's important too. Verse 3. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman. I'm going to see that it's not a good translation for one word. And God is the head of Christ. Well, what's going on here? Notice the words, I want you to understand. 
In other words, there's more he wants them to understand about this subject. He's not, again, chastising them for their ignorance. He doesn't expect them to know what he's about to teach them because he hasn't taught them yet. And certainly he's not chastising them for bad behavior. You don't see that anywhere. You see him teaching, but you don't see him pointing out, and you've been failing in this area. That's not part of this section. So he's not chastising them at all. Notice he's appealing to their mind. I want you to understand some things that I'm now going to give to you that I haven't given you in the past. In other words, he's giving them new insights. Insights about Christian, Christian, uh, what it means to be a Christian. Insights about how God thinks about different subjects. Insights about who they are in Christ. Insights about the worship service. And he does that so that they'll be strengthened to remain faithful to his teaching here on women covering their heads when they pray. In other words, he does very little commanding. You'll see there's almost no commands. Nothing as, as we say in the Greek in the imperative mood. Very little, if any of that here. He's mostly doing a lot of teaching here. And that's important too. After all, you can't expect somebody to follow a command or follow a teaching if you haven't given them that teaching. Okay, so that's what he's saying here. I need to teach you a little more about this. Well, here in verse 3, the challenge is to interpret the word head correctly. I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. I just read, read, read to you the King James Version, which is better in this case, because it's not a woman. It's the woman. And you may say, well, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is, is that it's either talking about a specific relationship, this man and this woman, or a general principle. And it's the general principle. He's dealing with manhood and womanhood here. Okay? He's not dealing with marriage, by the way. We'll see that in a minute. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. Well, the key is, what does he mean by the head? Well, the Greek word for the head here is kephale. Kephale. And it's used most often in the, in the Bible to refer to the physical head. This thing that's on the top of the human body. On the top of the human body. And that's important to understand because it's also used in a metaphoric way. In other words, this is the relationship he's going to describe is like the head on the body. It's, it's done in that sense. And there it's used to represent what is most prominent. You know, like the top of a hill or a mountain. That's the most prominent. That's what you see, right? The most prominent, the highest status, or the superior rank. And really, in this case, he's dealing with that which is most prominent, foremost, uppermost, preeminent. That's important, too. He's not dealing with ruling in this case. He's dealing with what, but, but by fact, is more prominent, more foremost, and preeminent. That's important. I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. This is not limited to husbands and wives. It refers to all men and all women. Now, you may have been taught differently in the past, I understand. But if you look at the context, which we'll point out in a second, it cannot be referring to husbands and wives. It's referring to all men and all women. Now, why do I say that? Well, I want you to notice that the head of every man is Christ. Is Christ the head just of husbands? No. So this isn't dealing with husbands and wives. Besides that, women besides wives could pray and prophesy. 
as a matter of fact, there's some more restrictions on the wives than there is on the rest of the women. We won't see that till chapter 14. But this is talking about all women, all men, as a gender, as a class, if you think of it that way. What's it saying? Well, the main point here in verse 3 is really simple. Everyone has a head. Every, everyone has some, someone who is more prominent. Someone who is first in line, if you want to put it that way. Even Christ. So this is why you get out of the idea. This isn't talking about marriage. This is talking about something else. It's talking about that which is foremost, that which is the most preeminent. I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. Everyone has a head. Christ is the head of the man. The man is the head of the woman. And God is the head of Christ. What does it mean that the man is the head of the woman? Very simply, it means he has precedence. He has precedence. Why, though? Is he better? No. It's only because he was created first. That's it. As a matter of fact, think about precedence in a family. Think about the fact that the eldest has precedence, at least in, 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 in the biblical times, right? Was the eldest better than the second born? I'll stand here today and testify that is not the case. Why? Because I was born second myself. That's not what it's teaching. It's just a fact. He was born first. Therefore, he has precedence over me. He was born second. That's all this is talking about. All right. So that's important to understand. The man has precedence over the woman. Now, here's what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that Christian women are inferior to Christian men. Throw that out. A lot of men would like to interpret it that way. It's not what it means. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't even here mean that they're subordinate. That's not, this is not what this is talking about. This is just talking about the fact of what position each one takes based on the origins. Okay, that's what it's talking about. It has to do with place, not nature. The place. The man stands in front. That's all this is saying. He occupies the first position. Right? There's a, there are positions on the team, and the man has the first one. There's positions on a, on a basketball team. Somebody's got to be the center. Right? Usually it's the tallest one. Is it, are you better because you're taller? Well, maybe at basketball, but not as a person. Just occupying the first position. Standing in front. After all, in this passage, in this verse, if it were true that the one who is the head was inferior, the, the, the one who has the head, rather, were inferior to the head, you know what that would mean? That would mean that Christ is inferior to God. That would mean that he's less than God, which is, of course, heresy. That's not what this is talking about. But notice this. Remember there's a literal or physical uh, meaning of that word kephale, physical head, top. And then a metaphorical one. Well, both are used here in this passage. Starting in verse 4, we'll see this. What, this is, what he's about to say is what you do with your physical head when you pray or teach can either bring shame or glory to your spiritual head. In other words, um, the man has a physical head. What he does with that has, has, can either shame or bring glory to his spiritual head, Christ. In the same way, a woman has a spiritual head, the man, and what she does can either bring shame or glory to her spiritual head, the man. Okay. Let's look at verses 4 and 5 to see what he, how he uses this word kephale. He's going to move from the physical to the spiritual 
as is so often the case. You go from the physical, which is really kind of more straightforward to understand. Everybody has a head, it's on the top of our body, and then moves into the spiritual. What is that, what is that analogous to in the spiritual life? 1 Corinthians 11.4 Every man who has something on his physical head while praying or prophesying disgraces his spiritual head, Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his spiritual head. Now, this is a cultural thing that comes down to this very day. Do you know something that, what do men do to show honor? You know what they do? They take their hat off, right? They take their hat off, right? I had an experience one time. The first time I went before the Public Utilities Commission in Rhode Island, I don't know why, but I had a Boston Red Sox hat on. And the first thing that the chairman of the Public Utilities Commission said to me, you know what, isn't there something you should be doing right now? And I'm like, oh, man, boom. So... That's just, what is that? That's courtesy, you know? But what you do with your physical head when you're praying or teaching in the worship service can either bring shame or glory to your spiritual head. Every man who has something on his physical head while praying or prophesying disgraces his spiritual head, Christ. But every woman who has her physical head uncovered while praying or prophesying, while praying or prophesying, disgraces her spiritual head, the man. For she is one in the same, it's almost as if she would have her head shaved. It's one and the same thing. Why? Because of the shame involved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. Is he, is he exaggerating? Yes. Does he want to get a point across? Yes. He says, if a woman doesn't cover her head while praying or prophesying, well, let her have her hair cut off too. Now, since it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off, her head shaved, let her cover her head. Now, at this point, we have to make a really critical distinction. All right? We need to distinguish between societal norms in the first century in Corinth, and those may not apply to us today. Indeed, many of them don't. All right? Distinguish between that, what was culturally accepted, the norm and standard in the first century in Corinth, compare and contrast that with universal Christian standards of behavior. In other words, the the traditions involving what's on a woman's head, well, that was specific to Corinth in the first century, right? But love your neighbor as yourself is a universal Christian standard of behavior. You see the difference? In the same way, clothing can change from culture to culture, but honoring the Lord is something we need to do. That's a universal Christian standard of behavior. We need to keep those two separate and understand, because it's hard sometimes to, to... in this particular passage, to tease those two things out. Is this a cultural standard in the first century, or is this a universal Christian standard of behavior? Very often, as we've seen already, we can take the particular in first century Corinth and then understand the universal principle. We just did that. Remember we were talking about food sacrificed to idols? And we were saying the principle that, that, you know, that was something they faced because of their culture. Most of the meat in the meat market had been previously sacrificed to idols. But what was the principle behind it? The principle is that you shouldn't worship anything besides God. So we may not run into idol meat, you know, at Publix, but we're certainly supposed to still, what, not worship anything besides God. You have the specific and the universal. And that's important to keep in mind. Now, in verse 4, Paul actually is not referring to a long hair or a hat. Right? At that time, <laughs> when the pagans went to their temples 
to worship their gods when the Romans and the Greeks did that. The men would pull a toga over their head. That's what was going on. That was over their head. All right. So that was, one of the ways in which they worshipped the false gods was to have a toga over their head. So Paul is saying, you know what? If you guys do the same thing as Christians, you're disgracing Christ. By the way, this is a hypothetical situation. It's, we have no idea whether this was actually going on in the Corinthian church. Probably wasn't. But he's making a point using the men that it's no less shameful for the woman to pray or prophesy uncovered. Now the first thing I want you to notice about verse 5 is that the women, that Paul had no problem with women praying or prophesying in the worship service. It's very interesting. He says, every woman who has her physical head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her spiritual head, the man. But notice it doesn't say that she should not pray or prophesy. After all, this whole section is about how women should comport themselves when they're praying or prophesying in the, in the local, local church service, the worship service. That's important. It's interesting because a lot of, a lot of people would say that they don't. They don't. Women can't pray or prophesy in the public worship service. Prophesy meaning teaching. All right? But we'll see it has its place. We'll get into that in a little while. So, that, so it's interesting. Paul here doesn't say that the women shouldn't pray in the worship service, that the women shouldn't prophesy in the, in the worship service. He simply wanted to make sure they did it in the proper way. And here he's talking about their heads covered. He's saying basically, listen, if you have your head uncovered while you're praying or prophesying in the public worship service... That would be as shameful as having her head shaved. That's what he's saying. Now, now step back for a minute. In our culture today, does a woman with her hair shaved bring shame on her family? No, right? Think about Sinead O'Connor, if you remember her. There's so many other women, you know, culturally today, that's accepted. Right? I mean, I wouldn't recommend it, ladies. Actually, we'll see why in a little while. But it certainly doesn't bring the shame that it brought in the first century. Why? Because in that time and place, a woman with a shaved head was a disgraced woman. She was shamed. And that was the way she was shamed. It indicated that she was either a prostitute or an adulterer. Men who found out that their women had cheated on them would take all their clothes off, shave their head, and throw them out. It was a totally different culture, right, ladies? I hope you're kind of glad that you're in this one rather than that one. So you have to understand that the meaning he was bringing out here had to do with is as if, if, you're, if you're comporting yourself, dressing in the wrong way in the worship service, when you pray or prophesy, you're actually no different from the woman who has her head shaved because she's a prostitute or an adulterer. It doesn't carry that meaning today, but it's important to understand the context, the meaning, why he would say that, why that would be so shocking to the Corinthians in the first century. By the way, in that time and place, a woman who didn't have her hair covered in public was announcing to the men that she was available. How do you like that? Yeah. In that time, if the woman had her head uncovered in public, it indicated that she was um, available to the men. She was saying, you know what? Come and get me. All right. Now, that's not true today. At least in our culture. There are some cultures where that is true today. We'll talk about that. But in that time, respectable Greek women always had their heads covered when they went out in public. Always. 
And so he's saying, listen, that's how, you, that's how you behave in a dignified way, even when you're out and about. Why would you come in here and be less dignified in a way that's actually shameful? That's what he's saying. You know? And so the women had to take that to heart. Yeah, why would I? Why would I do that? Well, because why? The, the, the issue here, the meaning behind it, was that when they covered their hair, when they went outside or in the worship service, there was an indication that she was innocent, virtuous, and untouchable. In other words, I'll put it this way, it removed any sexual issues from the woman. Now that's important when you're in a worship service, don't you think? I do. Now why would you say, why is this even an issue for them? Don't they know that this was the case? Don't they understand from how the women are clothed when they're outside? Well, the problem is, not a problem exactly, but that in the first century, most worship occurred in private homes. So you can picture, the, let's say, the wife of the man who has who was invited everybody to the home for the worship service. Now, before the worship service starts, she probably doesn't have her head covered. And so it would be very easy for her to just kind of start in the worship service and get a place of honor to pray not even thinking about the fact that, you know what, now the worship service has started, now things are different, now I have to cover my head. Okay. And again, flowing hair was sexually provocative to men at that time. Much as it is today to Muslim men, if you understand the culture in the Middle East, the Muslim culture, that's the same thing today. By the way, it's also the same thing today in the Hasidic Jewish culture. They consider that tempting if a man sees a woman's head uncovered, it's a temptation. It's, it's, it's provocative. Okay, In that culture. Same thing, by the way, with the Amish. Same thing with the Amish today. I mean, there, there you have it. That's a Hasidic Jewish woman. That's an Amish woman. Notice, their hair is covered. Their head is covered. Okay. By the way, in the African American church community today, it is still customary for women to wear hats to church. And boy, do they ever. <laughs> right? So it, it, it we'll see that this is uh, clearly not something that's out of the ordinary for many, many, many cultures, including Christian ones. The point here, though, is that Christians shouldn't needlessly flout cultural norms. Like I said, if it's a cultural norm to take your hat off when you're going inside a building, you shouldn't be coming in here and have your hat on. Now, please, man, I'm not saying that's the case, maybe you may have reasons for that. Maybe as a matter of fact that you're undergoing chemotherapy and you don't want to have your head uncovered. That's different. But in general, you shouldn't needlessly, the key is needlessly flout the societal norm, especially in the worship service. Especially in the worship service. Now, at the very least in that day and age, if a woman had her hair uncovered, it would draw attention to herself. Is that what, the, what any of us are supposed to be doing in the worship service? Hey, look at me. Why? We're supposed to say, hey, look at Christ. Right. So that kind of contradicts what the worship service is all about if the woman is drawing all this attention to herself. Her hair is her glory, but when the congregation is worshiping, only God should be glorified. If she did that, if she had her hair uncovered, especially in that culture, she would be disgracing her head. The man. Now, I wanted to tell you, this is not just the husband. This could also mean her father or a other male head of the household. It's the head of the household in which she is living. Could be a husband, could just be a father, an unmarried woman, or the head of the household if the father has died. 
So that's all it is. It's the man who has um, the head in the, in the household which he is living. That's who would be disgraced, dishonored back in that day and age. Well, what's the lesson? The lesson for us is to honor gender of decorum in worship. We don't think of that very much. That's, that's because of the culture we're in today. Boy, is it ever. I mean, think about how, how many, I think there's something like 72 identities that are possible on Facebook. Gender identities. You know, that's confusing. Right? But the point is, is that there is certain decorum for the ladies and the men in worship. In other words, ladies are to follow the social norms for what is dignified and what is dishonoring in the manner of her attire. We're in a different time and place. But in the Christian community, there are still things that are dignified that women, how they dress. And there are still things that are dishonoring in how they may dress. Right? I don't want to get into all the specifics. But you can certainly think of some specifics where if you saw my daughter leading the worship service dressed in a certain way, that would be kind of shameful. Like, why is she dressing that way? She sometimes gets that from her mom, even when there's, I would think there's no issue. But, but that should be a concern that we think about. And again, it's just like what Paul was talking about with, the eat, with eating the meat sacrificed to idols. What was the first thing he brought up? Others, right? You may think you have the freedom to do something, but if it's something that would bring down a fellow brother or sister, don't do it. See, this issue isn't really solely about God. After all, the woman does not dishonor God in this. She dishonors her head, her husband, her father, the head of the household. That's important to understand. You've got to think of other people. Who might be shocked to see that in a Christian service? Who might be here for the first time? And they have certain cultural understanding. Wait a minute, I'm in, a, I'm in a worship now. And I look around and then the people are dressed like they're going to a baseball game. You know, Not that there's anything wrong, but there's some differences between how you dress in one social setting and in another one. And you have to understand that. For example, if you were a a missionary in a foreign country, you would need to understand the customs of dress in that society, especially the customs among the Christian community there. If you were to violate those, you would violate why you're there. You would would bring shame to yourself. There are certain manners in which people can dress and conduct themselves that in certain cultures are shameful. That's the issue. That's the issue that never changes. That's a universal principle. By the way, in the worship service, this is especially important, what? When a woman is praying or prophesying. Well, we don't have women, we don't have anybody prophesying in the sense of bringing out new revelation or telling what's going to happen in the future. That's done. That was something that was going on in the first century. Okay, it doesn't go on today. But, there's a, but something does go on today, and that's teaching. He's talking about praying and teaching. The teaching that women, women can teach, okay? They can teach one another and children. And we have that. Right now we have a child in Sunday school being taught by a woman, right? Well, a young lady. I don't know if she's, she's getting there as a woman. So when a woman participates in the worship service, singing in the choir, our Sunday school teacher, this principle is especially important. Because whether, whether we think about it or not, such things, publicly, publicly uh, praying, publicly leading the congregation in song, teaching, these are honors. It's an honorable thing. It's a special honor that's given to the woman to do that. And therefore, she should 
dress according to that. Wouldn't you do that? If you were going to the, um, nobody does this anymore, but if you go into the opera, or let's say you were going to a state dinner at the White House, right? Would you show up in raggedy jeans and a t-shirt? No, you wouldn't be allowed in if you did that. There's certain customs that you would follow. Well, the same thing is true. We don't think about it this way, but it's really true in the worship service too. After all, we're not just going to the White House. We're going to the house of God. Not, now, that's not people. I mean, that's not the building, by the way. If there's nobody here in the building and a woman wanted to pray out loud, she was clean in, in here and she was dressed in clothes appropriate for cleaning the building, that is just fine. It has to do with gathering together for public worship with one another. That could happen anywhere. It could happen outside. It could happen in a person's home. But when it is happening, there are certain ways in which we to dress and conduct ourselves that are in keeping with the honor that is given to us. All right. So while veils may not be applicable to Christian women today, I say may not be, by the way, the principle is still the same. Dress in a manner that is appropriate for the worship service, and especially if you're in a leadership role or at least an active participant by, by the song leader, by teaching, especially in that situation. Verse 7. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God. Right? Who's the, who's the head of the man? Christ. Okay? But the woman is the glory of man. Man does not originate from woman. In other words, it wasn't as if the first woman was created by God and then she gave birth to the first man. That didn't happen. What? The man was created first. It's just a fact. Nothing we can do about it. It's not a, it's not a, that's not, a, by the way, that is not a cultural norm. That is a fact. For universally, from the moment that God created Adam and then fashioned the woman out of his rib, that, that was precedent that's going to carry all the way through until uh, we're resurrected because there's no marriage in heaven and so forth. So that's just a fact. Man does not originate from the woman, but woman from man. For indeed, when you look at the creation um, story that we see, man wasn't created for the woman's sake. How do we know that? Because she didn't exist. When man was created, there was no woman. Therefore, he couldn't have been created for the woman's sake. Woman was created for the man's sake. It is not good for the man to be alone. Right? He, he needs a partner and a helper. Man was created for, woman was created for the man's sake. Ladies, there's nothing you can do about it. Again, that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when God created the man and the woman. It's just a fact. Therefore, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. That, verse 10, is often misinterpreted. We'll see that this morning. So man is the image and glory of God. What does this mean? It means that man is God's crowning creation. He was made in the image and likeness of God. Now, women were too. But initially, the first one, the one that has precedent, the man was first created in the image and likeness of God. Man is God's crowning creation. Like no other part of creation, by the way, including the angels. The angels are never said to be, be created in the image and likeness of God. But man is. And so, it's the most glorious creation that God has ever performed. Let's go now to see this. Oh, wait, no, one other point. That's the man. Now, the same, the same principle holds with the woman. The woman reflects the glory of man like nothing else in creation. You see, it's really a wonderful thing that's being said about women. The woman reflects the glory of man like nothing else in creation. Yes, males, but also the whole race, the whole human race. The woman is the glorious, if I could put it that way, one. 
like nothing else in creation as well. Let's go to Genesis now to see this so that we understand the origins of all this. Genesis 1.26. The woman is the glory of man, not a man. Man. Genesis 1.26. Give you a moment to get there. Not really hard, because it's probably on the second page of the Bible, something like that. In Bible study on Thursday, we went to Revelation 22. And, you know, people were like going, okay, Genesis, Ezekiel, where is it? Where? Not really. But that was an easy one to go to also, right? It's on the last page of the Bible. See, I'm making life easy on you folks lately. Last page of the Bible on Thursday, first page of the Bible on Sunday. Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Notice, man is created in the image and likeness of God, according to our likeness. Never said about any other creation, any of them. The birds in the sky, the sun, angels, never said of any of them but man. Let's make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, all else of creation, and over the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I'm not sure that means we can step on them, but it certainly means that we rule over them. I have to check that out with God someday. All right, now let's go to chapter 2. Here we see in chapter 1, man is made in the image and likeness of God. The only creation that is true about. Now let's go to chapter 2 when we see the relationship between man and woman. Genesis 2.18. By the way, Genesis 2 is an expansion of Genesis 1. In other words, he briefly says the creation of man that we just saw in chapter 1. And he expands on it in chapter 2. Okay. Genesis 2.18-23. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. Can I get an amen on that? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. This is definitely not universally true, but I know very often in a, in a marriage, okay, elderly couples, when the woman dies first, the man falters. So often the case, okay. That, of course, not most of the time that's not what happens, you know. Men tend to live, women tend to live longer than men. But it is not good for the man to be alone. You know, think about all the situations today when the man is alone, how there's trouble. Think about young men who don't have fathers, and they're not married, and they're wild and out of control. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Notice, God created the man first, realized that he cannot be alone, he needs a partner, a helper. He said, I'm going to make you a helper that's suitable. What did God do? It's interesting. He didn't directly go and create the woman. It's kind of interesting. Out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field. Could that be the helper suitable? Every bird of the sky. And he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, and to the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. God has to do something else. So God took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. He did surgery, closed things back up. I don't know if there was scar tissue. Don't ask me. The Lord fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man. The man was created first. The woman was created 
as a partner, as a helper, and she was created from the rib of the man. He, he, he fashioned the woman, by, he fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, finally. I mean, it's not in there, but that's basically what he said. Wow. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Okay. Man was created first. Woman is in the second position as the helper. Somebody has to be the helper. Right? No man, can, by the way, you know this is true. No man can get it done himself. They think, we think we can. We always need a helper. I'm not saying that every man has to be married. But we all need help. Can I get an amen to that? <laughs> Men need help. So God has created the woman as the optimal help for the man. Okay. Man was created first. All that means he's in first position. Woman was created second. She was created to be man's helper and partner. Notice, partner. i point something out to that. It's very significant that the chapter 11 that we're in now in Corinthians... Paul refers back to Genesis 1 and 2, right? We just saw that. You know what he doesn't go back to? Genesis 3. He doesn't talk about Genesis 3 here in relationship of the man and the woman. 1 and 2, the creation, the origination, the position. He doesn't get into the issues of chapter 3. What are the issues of chapter 3? It isn't until chapter 3 that the fall occurs. <laughs> now that cha- notice that changes things with respect to the man and the woman. Why? Because in verse 16 of chapter 3 of Genesis, it said that now, after the fall, the man is to rule over the woman. That's after the fall. Paul doesn't deal with Genesis 3 in our section today. Just one and two. So you can throw out the concept of ruling over women in this section. He's not dealing with that. After all, Paul says that the woman is the glory of the man, not the servant of the man. There's a big difference. Okay. The man was created to reflect God's glory. The woman was created to reflect man's glory. In other words, both the man and the woman are the glory of their spiritual heads. This is important to understand. The glory. Because the woman, therefore, reflects the glory of man. She is to cover that glory in the worship service. Why? Why? Because worship should be all about the glory of God not the glory of man. That's all. Woman is the partner, the helper, the glory of man, and yet in the worship service, it should be God that's glorified, not man, not mankind. That brings us to verse 10. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. What does that sound like if you read that in the New American Standard? The woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head Because of the angels. But is Paul talking about the man having authority, rulership, over the woman here in chapter 11? Is Genesis 3 referred to at all? You can talk in church. No. No, it isn't. See, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like the woman ought to have a symbol of the authority of the man over her, doesn't it? When you first read that, or maybe as we've been conditioned to read it, it sounds as if the symbol of authority is the authority of the man over her. It's not. That's not dealt with here in in this section of the book of Corinthians. As a matter of fact, it's nearly the opposite of what the Greek says. Nearly the opposite. Um, I want to just read to you the King James Version 
of this verse, verse 10. This is how the King James puts it. And it's actually more faithful to the Greek. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Isn't that different? Power on her head. Having power on your head is very different from having a symbol of someone else's authority on your head. Can you see that? It's amazing how this is really different from what the New American Standard and most modern translations have. I want to give you once again a little Greek. The Greek word here for what is said to be symbol of authority in in the New American Standard for verse 10 is the Greek word exousia. Exousia. But here's what it means. First thing it means is privilege. She ought to have a symbol of privilege on her head, of capacity. She has been given the capacity to pray and to teach in the public worship service. It means delegated influence. I love that too. In other words, the man, we know the man is, is can, only a man can be the pastor and so forth, but it can be delegated to the woman that she can have an influence too or, or a part to play, if you want to put it that way, in the worship service. It means freedom of choice. We don't think of it this way. But in, in one sense, a woman covering her head gives her freedom. Gives her freedom. We think of it the other way around. It gives her rights. It gives her the means of executing power. That's what this verse is talking about. It's a symbol of her authority and empowerment. Doesn't that change this verse a lot, by the way? It's a symbol of her authority and empowerment. Now, why does he bring up angels? This is a source of endless controversy, but it's really simple. We know angels observe the worship service. Peter tells us that. That they're longing to see what's going on in the worship service. Because they understand that it is a reflection of the glory of God what's going on. They want to know. And so the woman, having the symbol, of, in other words, she's praying, but now she has the, 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 the indication that she has the authority, that she has the authority to do that. And now the angels who are observing the worship service understand that this is being done in the proper way. There's order and dignity about the worship service. That's what the woman having a covering is all about. Her authority to do what she can do. Pray and and teach in the worship service. 1 Corinthians 11.11 However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. In other words, don't confuse the, rent, the order in which you were created and being independent of one another. You're not. You're equal when it comes down to how you live as man and woman today, okay, or any time during the church age. Man's not, woman's not independent of man, but neither is the man independent of the woman. For as the woman originates from the man, yes, creation, so also the man has his birth through the woman. There's not a man here today that would be here if it wasn't for his mommy. Right? Right. The man it comes out now by birth. Birth from a woman. That's why things are so messed up today. Man, I'm hearing some stuff about all kinds of crazy stuff. But that's not God's design, folks. God's design, <coughs> a man and a woman are married. The two come one flesh. There is a child. From the woman. Okay. Man has his birth through the woman. And notice this. All things originate from God. In other words, don't get haughty, men, because you were created first. You know, the issue isn't that. The issue is what glorifies God? Why did he do that? 
What is it that God intended in the creating the man and the woman? That's what's important. In other words, Paul wants to make sure that nobody gets the wrong idea. Easy to happen. In other words, none of it means that the woman's independent of man, a free agent, but also man is not independent of woman. They need each other. Whoops, I don't have that. Oh. All right. A little repeat, a little music now. Okay. Okay, what did I do? Oh, I know what I did. little review. Now you can see it in print, right? We already talked about this, but because the woman is created in the second position, in other words, why does it say in verse 10 that the woman ought to have power on her head, an indication of her authority? She was created in the second position, right? She's on deck, right? If you're on deck, you have to some indication when it's time to step up to the plate and hit, okay? That's all it's talking about. She was the second position, so she needs to have a suitable covering on her head. Why? To indicate that she has the right or authority to pray or prophesy. I want to, that's, actually, it's good that that was repeated, because that's a key thing to understand about this whole section. It has to do with women and how they comport themselves and present themselves when they are to pray or to teach. Okay. And again, men and women are not independent of each other. They need each other. They need each other. Man was created but didn't have everything it takes to be out there and doing what he needs to do. Women don't either. Right? I know this is going to be offensive to some people today. You'll think there's absolutely no difference between men and women, but folks, there is. There are some things that man was created by God to be able to do. And there are some things that the woman was created by God to do. And they're not the same things. But they're designed to work together. Just like the spiritual gifts, which we're going to see coming up in chapter 12. Remember he says, does, he, does the eye have no need of the ear? Right? Of course it does. Right? We all work together as a community, but man and woman in that community working together. <laughs> we are designed, men and women, to work together as partners. Partners. And that's the key word. <coughs> Neither independent partnership. The first woman, the first woman may have come from the man, but from then on all the males have come from the females. Besides, all things originate from God. He created all things. All things have been created by Christ and through Christ and for Christ. So, for as the woman originates from the man in verse 12, again, so also the man has his birth from the woman and all things originate from God. All right, let's now look at verse 13 through 16. Judge for yourselves. In other words, I've given you enough information now to draw the right conclusion. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? No. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? Yes. But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her? Yes. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is content inclined to be contentious. You want to argue with me about that? Here's the deal. We have nothing else to offer you. There's no other practice we can point to here in the first century Corinth. Nor have any of the other churches of God out there in the first century. You know, this, this puzzled me for a long time when it says, doesn't even nature teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? And I'm thinking, nature? I mean, I looked this up. Men's hair and women's hair grow at the same pace, Okay. 
There's nothing that, that says, wow, the women just, you know, they're like, boom, they have long hair. And the men are still sitting around with short hair. No, that's not it at all. It's not talking about what we, remember, it's not what we think nature means in our scientific age. It means what it was meant then. I'm going to see that in a minute. Verse 13, by the way, highlights Paul's main point. It stands alone in the flow of things. Most of this goes alternates between man and woman. Man and woman. Verse 13 is just the woman. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? This is the main point of this section. It's not. It's not proper for a Christian woman in Corinth to pray to God with her head uncovered. And then he goes on. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. Well, what's nature here? You know, we usually, again, think about the natural realm, biology, and so forth. It's not what it meant back then. It means very simply the way things are done in keeping with God's design. God has created the man in a certain way. God has created the woman in a certain way. And from then on, things are to be done according to God's design. After all, it's the men who cut their hair and it's the women who let it grow long. But they had to do that in keeping with God's design. That's all nature means here. In other words, uh, this used to be something you wouldn't even have to think about, but God has designed the man to have masculine features. That shouldn't be controversial, by the way. But it is. In some cases, the woman is designed to have feminine features. Some of these features, these differences between the sexes are biological. Others come from the societal norms that complement God's design, that come out of God's original design, such that the woman's hair reflects her feminine glory. On the other hand, long hair on a man would cover the glory he has and make him indistinguishable from the woman. That's always what's going on, by the way, when men grow their hair as long as the ladies. It's to make them indistinguishable from the woman. Boy, I know that's not popular, but that's the truth. It's to take away their masculinity, to make them feminine. That's the way it goes, okay? And that's not God's design, to make men and women, you know, the same, indistinguishable. Now, here's the thing, though. Take a deep breath, because the Bible doesn't say exactly how long a man's hair should be. You know how like uh, in Christian schools and in Catholic schools, they used to have rules like how low the hem of the dress has to be in relationship to the knee. None of that's in the Bible, folks. No, it's societal norms dictate the specifics. How long is too long for man's hair? How short is too short for women's hair? Verse 16. Last verse of the day. But if one is inclined to be contentious, I love that. I know there's going to be out there some people want to argue with me about this today. Paul said it, I'm saying it. Maybe not here, but boy, oh boy, if this was done, uh, if I was preaching this today in the halls of Congress, can you imagine? If one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nothing for you, and neither any of the churches out there. Don't try to go to another church and say, oh, look, they have a different social norm. They don't. You can argue with me on this all you want, but you don't have a leg to stand on. This is practiced by all the other churches. Okay, let's sum up. What have we seen today that we can take with us? What are our takeaways, as it were? First, women are to dress for the worship service in a dignified and proper way that does not bring shame. Let me say that again. Women are to dress for the worship service in a dignified and proper way that does not bring shame. 
the norms are set by the community of which he is a part. The Christian community of which he is a part sets the norms. Why? So that people aren't shocked by the way you dress, ladies. Again, it might be different if you are, if you are in uh, you know, an island with uh, pygmies or whatever. They, they, they dress very differently. I don't know if you've ever seen those National Geographic, you know, or pictures of mission, missionaries in those parts of the world, you know. They don't have a lot of clothes on. They're not shocked by that. But we would be, right? I mean, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll go to the extreme. If a woman came down the aisle today with no clothes on, would anybody be shocked by that? I sure would. Like, what's, what's wrong with her? Get her her medicine. No. But the norms are set by the community of which she is a part. And I have to note in regard to this that, you know what? Our cultural norms today, and it started in the 60s, are unusual in comparison to most other places in the world, as well as the times in our country before 1960. Here is a picture of women outside a Baptist church in the 1950s. What do you notice? They all have hats on. Isn't that interesting? They all have hats on. Yeah, and they're dressed really nicely, too. Men were dressing, men, men all had ties. Yep, they really did. So, we're the unusual ones now in the 21st century Western culture, United States. Okay, one other point to close. No, but this will be it. When a woman, pray, notice, prays or prophesies during the worship service, and that just means, prophesy again means teaching children or other women, what? She should dress in keeping with the societal norms for these worship service. Or better, she should reflect the honor that she has in keeping with the practice of the Christian community. By the way, this includes having the proper covering for her head. In keeping with the norms of the Christian community of which she is a part. You know something? Even in our Western culture today, when, when hair coverings are worn by women it indicates that they're special. It indicates that they're special. Maybe they're nobility. Maybe they're royalty. Maybe they're a bride. Or maybe they're just at the Kentucky Derby. (laughs) But all aspects of the worship service should be done in a dignified and orderly manner. That's the final thing. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that we were able to get through this service without any women walking out. We also further thank you, Father, that you have uh, given us the understanding that we need to have about the dignity of the worship service. Help us not to forget that. Sometimes we can slip into being too casual. Father, today, if anybody here has not become a Christian, we would ask to have the opportunity and privilege now in the prayer to preach the gospel, namely that we are all born sinners. Nothing anybody can do about the fact that you're a sinner. But God knew this. You knew this, Father. And so you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to do what we could never do, which is to die for our sins, all of them. And then you raised Him from the dead so that whoever believes in Christ will never perish, but has eternal life. And Father, finally, we do want to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray for one another here. We pray for Christians all over the world, especially today, Father, in South Africa. As Kingsley is there to witness the gospel and to teach the men who are pastors. But all over the world, Father, especially where Christians are being persecuted. We would ask for your power in their lives as well. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
All right, a couple of announcements, and then I'll let you go. Um, Thursday, next Bible study, please try to be there. We're looking at the subject of eternal security. The moment you believe in Christ, your salvation is secure for all time. Nothing that you do, nothing anybody else do, does, nothing. Satan himself cannot do a thing about the fact that you are saved forever. And seen in God's eyes as perfect and complete. So please join us for that really uplifting subject that we're on. <laughs> and then finally, um, prayer requests. Please give them to us. There's a box in the foyer. We can write them. You can also go on our website, www.lbible.org, and you can see a little icon that says, "Help us, you know, give us something to pray about. Finally, if you have any questions today about the message or really anything else that's been on your mind, about the Bible, I invite you to speak with me right now, right after service. The only condition I'll put on today is that the ladies, unfortunately, won't be able to come down. Anybody. All right. Father, again, we just thank you for this time together, for the great family you've gathered around us. Father, help us to be relaxed and to take into mind the big picture about who we are in Christ. As Whenever we deal with uh, thorny subjects like this one, we always fall back on the truth about who we are. And we would ask that we would do this in this subject too. We ask it in Christ's name by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.